Hey now. Other people call me Paul. Paul Nelson if I'm in trouble. And I'm here to take you on a journey through the hearts and the minds of some really thoughtful people who've made it their business to actively change and improve the experiences of the students in their classrooms. And beyond that, we intend to focus on stories and challenges in addition to what we claim as truth or what works. I am a relative newcomer to the world of education research. I joined this group about six months before 2020 came strolling on through. And if we're going to be honest with with each other, this podcast is really just a cheap excuse for me to get to know some of the people that I work with and respect and trust in a format that lets us go a little bit deeper than the surface scratching that we get on those Zoom calls. But the hope is that someone somewhere will glean something useful from these discussions in their own personal quest to develop their teaching, or maybe even the teaching practices of a group they're a part of, an entire community they might belong to. We're going to center our conversation on this thing called three-dimensional learning, mostly in the context of undergraduate-level science courses. We're going to try to keep it low on jargon, high on really leveraging the collective knowledge of these people who've done the hard work of identifying an area of growth in their teaching and doing something about it, sustaining that change, talking to other people about it. And we'll try to connect this 3DL thing to other educational initiatives, technologies, and theoretical frameworks. Uh-oh, there it was. I said theoretical frameworks. It must be a sign that it's time to get this show on the road. Let's get started with our inaugural guest, who's going to take us on a tour of what exactly it is we're talking about here. Hi, my name is Melanie Cooper, and I feel really excited about three-dimensional learning. Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much for being here. I was expecting, um, I think, a little a more excellent vocabulary word to start off our... <laughs> I don't know why it is, but I feel like um, I have the working vocabulary of a seven-year-old British kid. I was wondering what your take is on that. What do they do different in, in English ca- class in England? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I And I, I think that's a, actually a misapprehension among Americans that the English are more articulate and are more erudite because, in general, they're not. So it's just a misunderstanding. It's just our problem. We have to get over it. Our insecurity, our verbal insecurities. Yeah. I, I think if more Americans traveled to England and, you know, embedded with the population, they would see that there's very little difference um, between the two, except the accent. <laughs> Okay, so I need you to explain something to me. I, when I look you up, I find some papers with titles like Nucleophilic Substitutions at an Indole Beta Position. Um, so what's going on with that? I thought you were an education researcher. Um, I am now, but uh, way back uh, when I started, I was an organic chemist. So my PhD is in organic chemistry. And... So leading up to that, you're, uh, I assume that you're, all of your undergraduate education was all three-dimensional, which we have not defined yet. <laughs> uh, it was not. Uh, I had a very traditional uh, 
undergraduate education. I, I, I'm from England, as you mentioned earlier. So I went to the University of Manchester. And back at that time, not very many people went to university. No, uh, so they've expanded it greatly since then. So only, you know, I think it was less than 10% of the population. And the, the you know, I, I was a chemistry undergraduate and we took chemistry courses and that was it. And the lecturer stood at the front of the hall and he lectured and we wrote down the notes. And then um, every so often at the end of the year, they would give us <clears throat> an exam. Uh, but in fact, you didn't actually have to pass any of them until the end. Uh, right at the end, you took your exams and whatever you did on those exams was what, what class of degree you got. But it wasn't like you were, it wasn't like multiple chances to take it. It was just a one shot. It was a one shot, at the end. one shot okay. deal. Hmm. Right. So you took all your exams in a two week period at the end of the third year. It took three years. So I can relate to you a little bit as having like a, I don't know what what we want to call it a hard science background before, but um, I don't know if, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if education research uh, slash researchers get a whole lot of love from quote hard scientists. Why? Well, correct me if I'm wrong first, but then if I'm onto something, why do you think that is? Um, you're not wrong. I think uh, I think you're right. I uh, I will say that throughout my career I've had to fight a lot to uh, to get recognition and to get acceptance within the chemistry department. <clears throat> I think back when I started there were very few uh, chemistry education or physics education or whatever uh, in, within mm -hmm. the chemistry department. It's just different. Uh, it's for some reason I don't know. Scientists, are, it turns out, are pretty conservative um, <laughs> and don't want to uh, change things. I, I think that's part of it. I think part of it is um, a lack of understanding about what we do. You know, and I, I certainly don't want to give the impression that you know it's been negative all along. But you're right, right. that, it, that it's it's. Um, there are still many departments, science departments uh, in the United States and across the world that don't have anybody in discipline-based education research. Mm -hmm. So what brought you out of the lab and into caring more about teaching and learning? Um, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> and it's probably, a, uh, I never had a plan. Now they tell everybody they have to have a plan. I never had a plan. Uh, I did a PhD, I did a postdoc, and then I got married. And um, so I found a temporary position teaching in a small college. And I realized, oh, <laughs> I like this better. <laughs> I like this better than being in the lab. This is, this is great. Mm -hmm. And so eventually a position turned up uh, at Clemson University, and we near where we lived. And I, eventually, I applied for it, and after some shenanigans, I read, uh, eventually uh, got the position. And it was at, I think, one of the first, certainly in chemistry, tenure-track positions uh, that had a focus on education. But they didn't have a focus on education like, like we do now. So my students are much better prepared than I was back then. You know, it was kind of, well, mm -hmm. I like education. 
I could do this. So I, mm. I applied and I, I eventually got it. So it was, you know, happenstance, serendipity, really. So that was uh, longer ago than I care to remember. <laughs> we won't put numbers on it. All right. So let's fast forward a few years, say, to today. If you kind of yanked a, a random K-12 science teacher or administrator out of a hat right now, they would have pretty a pretty good idea of what we're talking about if we said three-dimensional learning. What's your guess? This is pure guess. If you did, this, if you did the same thing with all the college science instructors, um, say, in the U.S., how many, how many, what percent would know something about 3DL, do you think? Uh, very few. You're, I, I think that's the point of the question. But I would imagine there are very few. There are a lot more at Michigan State than anywhere else, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, if the uh, college science teacher is involved in K-12 teacher prep, they will know. Mm -hmm. But if they're teaching you know, college courses, Almost certainly not. Hmm. Okay, so let's try this. If you were going to describe it to someone who's, let's start, say who doesn't even teach or hasn't heard of Framework or NGSS, how, how would you describe three-dimensional learning to them? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me this. Um, <laughs> and yet, <laughs> I have nothing yeah, prepared. It's hard. Um, it's hard, I think. I think... Uh, First off, when you think about what science is, for me, science is not uh, running through some practice problems. It's not a bunch of memorization. It's not a bunch of rote work. Science is interesting and, and um, challenging and, and uh, fun. Mm. And yet we do a horrible job of getting that across to the vast majority of people, I think. Even though at the college level, you know, we have a captive audience. They're paying us. <laughs> that's, that's the first, you know, coming in the classrooms at MSU. That was the first thing that stood out to me because I was coming from K-12 classrooms. I was like, they're all just sitting there. They're, they're, they're hanging on to every, all of, every word that comes out of your mouth. What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And yet, <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, for years, I, I, teaching was very important to me. And um, I, uh, I got great student evaluations and students would write and say, oh, you know, this was a fantastic class and so on and so forth. I mean, not everybody, because, you know, not everybody loves chemistry, but mm -hmm. But then I, I actually, so I actually, I'm going to meander a bit here. I actually started uh, as part of the research that we were doing. I started reading what the students were writing. So horrifying. Um, you know, it, it took a, a step back. It was. So you mean you're talking about what they were writing, like in response to uh, prompts that you were giving them about chemistry? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's what I mm. mean. Uh, yeah, not about me, <laughs> but about chemistry. Um, and and it was clear to me that they didn't understand. They didn't understand it at a very basic level. And we did some early studies back in the mid-2000s um, of just 
asking students about how things stick together, which is a hugely important uh, idea in chemistry, you know, mm -hmm. to how things attract each other. And um, what, what it turned up was that students could um, tell me back, tell us back, uh, lovely textbook definitions about what we were asking about. But when we asked them to draw the molecular level, what was going on, it was clear that they, they, there was no uh, comparison for many, many students yeah. between the two. They were talking about two different things. At the same time, I, you know, I became, I was becoming more exposed to the research that was going on in K-12 and, um, uh, and the framework and so on and so forth. And um, which has led to this idea of 3D learning. And, and so to get back to your question, mm -hmm. uh, 3D learning, I think, is a way to support students to develop a more scientific understanding of the world. So rather than teach students individual bits and pieces and facts, what we try to do is uh, the first dimension in three-dimensional learning is uh, these big ideas of the discipline. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is to help students connect their ideas, whatever we're teaching them, to these big ideas so that they've got this kind of network of, of connections and concepts that are they're, they're, they're connected together, mm -hmm. uh, not just isolated fragments here and there. But that's, um, of course, not... Uh, know, knowing something is all very well and good, but if you can't use it, then, you know, it's inert. There's mm -hmm. nothing actually, you know, there's no point in knowing something if you can't do something with the knowledge, particularly in science, I would say, you know, unless you're going in for pub trivia. Uh, <laughs> that's not what we're after. So, um, so the second dimension, uh, the most important dimension, actually, is the scientific practices, which is um, a... Uh, the National Academies essentially described quite specifically what it is that scientists do. And they, uh, there are eight of them. Uh, and when I've, did, you know, when I've shown practicing scientists these practices, none of ever disagreed. This is, hmm. this is indeed what scientists do. You know, so scientists ask questions, scientists design and carry out experiments. They, analyze and interpret the data they use arguments they make arguments from that evidence that they're they've collected uh, and to me ultimately what we want is for people to be able to explain phenomena if you can explain something in the sense that we're talking about in um, three-dimensional learning then you understand it and um, and you can use it. And uh, the last one is communication, uh, evaluating and communi communicating information, essentially. Um, maybe we'll talk about it more in a bit, but um, so there's these 
core idea, big act, core ideas. There's the scientific practices, and then the third lens, the third uh, dimension, is called cross-cutting concepts, and this is much less um, specified. <laughs> Do you have uh, you <laughs> have you seen Hamilton? Have you watched Hamilton? Yeah. So there's yeah. Um, Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy. The three Skylar sisters, right? So that's how I think of the, that. Uh, the, <laughs> the cross cutting concepts are Peggy, and core ideas and practices are Angelica and Eliza. My um, three and five year old like want to constantly constantly listen to the soundtrack, and they they the five year old basically speaks in in continuous quotes from Hamilton. <laughs> but uh, but yes. Yeah, oh, so. that's pretty good actually well the three-year-old sometimes <laughs> picks up on the wrong line she likes to she'll just randomly say um and i'm the damn fool that shot him shot him <laughs> <laughs> and so we're all you know covered our mouth up and turned away she can't see us laughing sorry so that, that that's that's my analogy for the the skylar sisters the cross-cutting concepts are peggy okay that's that's actually a great analogy no it's great um Indeed, <laughs> they're, they're, they, they get less attention and they're not very well understood, I think, uh, in general. Right. Um, but the idea is, for me, is that the cross-cutting concepts act as a kind of lens for you to look at something. Uh, you, so you can, you can understand um, some scientific phenomena uh, from different aspects. And for me, the cross-cutting concepts are those aspects. And typically, those are things that should or could cross disciplines mm. as well. Uh, and that's why I think they're called cross-cutting. But in fact, we don't have very much evidence about whether students can do that. I think there are, that's more theoretical than, than actual. I came across a quote um, Etienne Wenger said in a talk that I was watching. He said um, that we should be asking ourselves, this is the question we should be asking ourselves as we think about getting up in front of students. He said, what does it take to organize a meaningful visit into some practice? Does that resonate with how you think about planning for student engagement with 3DL? Or is it, or, or do you have to build up to that um, idea of inviting them into you know, kind of a more expert level um, way of thinking about things. So <clears throat> I think this this comes. I'm trying to think how to answer this. I don't know that <laughs> if there was a question in there or not, but well, <laughs> well, respond. I mm. I, I think um, part there is an issue in transferring three-dimensional learning to the college level and it has to do with with, with several things uh, one is we don't have time to have them um, construct models for example so that is a huge part of three-dimensional learning um, particularly it's i would mm -hmm. say in middle school uh, where a lot of that um, research has been done about how students can collaborate and come and, and, and make sense out of observations. And 
um, at the college level, A, we have a lot of prior knowledge that we presume students are bringing with them. And B, the ideas that we're um, having them grapple with are pretty darn complicated. So um, you're almost certainly not going to uh, come up with the idea that, you know, the energy levels of atoms are quantized mm-hmm. all by yourself. But you can use those ideas to construct a model once you have that background knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're not constructing it a priori mm-hmm. from, from your own observations. You're, I, and I just, I don't, uh, I don't think we've grappled properly with, the, with this idea. Uh, and so, I mean, this this goes back to how do you get students to uh, engage with real scientific practices? And that gets us into the idea of, well, what's authentic? Mm. You know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about we need to be um, having students have authentic experiences. But it's not authentic to sit in a lecture hall with 400 other mm. people. So. Is that... You're gonna help me out. Well, here. I don't know. I don't think so. Is that <laughs> oh. is the uh, authenticity uh, the call for authenticity? Is that related to or synonymous with this idea of um, needing things to be phenomenon based? I think it depends on who you talk to. Yeah. So I think certainly um, in the K twelve, I think that kind of authentic experience that's what it means Mm -hmm. but actually in higher ed when people talk about having an authentic experience what they mean usually is incorporating research into undergraduate courses the problem with that is of course that typically the research is complicated Mm -hmm. and you know because it's research it's at the forefront you have to have all this other knowledge and ways to use it that you would have to backfill to understand mm-hmm. the research. So there's been a big push, for example, to have uh, undergraduate research experiences in big courses. But in general, um, what I I believe is that even though students are participating in Publishable research. I mean, some of these things have published um, papers with, you know, 5,000 authors on it. Um, But they cannot be much more than lab technicians. And so there's a question there about is is it more beneficial for students to participate in an experience that's not really authentic, but it is well designed? and has them make it such that they can uh, engage in practices uh, and end up with an explanation or, uh, or design an experiment mm. to answer a question that's not real, right? It's not authentic um, because we probably already know the answer. Mm. Or is it better to have students engage in cutting edge research where they're lab technicians? You know, you can see where I'm coming down on this. So I want to, I want to maybe step back a little bit. Uh, 
I think that okay. was a good. I've wandered too far afield. Oh, no, no. The the intention is, you know, as we talk to other people, we're going to fill in more details about in the weed stuff. But I want to ask you some maybe historical things. Um, from your perspective, is is three dimensional learning something new, or is it a recycling or a repackaging of some, uh, you know, earlier reform efforts or ways to think about teaching? What do you think? How does it fit in with the education world the last yeah. hundred years or whatever, you know? <laughs> I think, I think it's, I think it's both. So I think, for example, that the scientific practices are essentially the components of inquiry, right? Mm. So for many years, we talked about inquiry-based mm. uh, teaching in all its glory. But the problem is that a lot of people, I think, misunderstood what that meant. And uh, still, if you ask people what, what's, what does inquiry-based teaching mean, then, then they would have different mm. opinions. But if you... Uh, have students engaging with the scientific practices, which are very, very well articulated, you know what they are. So I think that part is is just a better presentation. It's a cleaner packaging in a common language. Yeah, yeah, and easier to understand. And if you know what it is, you'll know when you see it too. <laughs> If you engage in, uh, have students engaged in practices, you can assess whether they under, you know, whether they use those practices, and you can design assessments mm. in which they use those practices. I think that makes it easier. Now, the the core ideas part, I think that that has emerged with all the research on expert novice. Mm the differences between them and the idea that experts uh, knowledge is fundamentally different in that it's connected and coherent and useful and somewhat transferable and and novices uh, understanding is is not so novices focus in on surface level stuff experts see the patterns uh, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of research on that so i think that <clears throat> over the years there have been a number of projects that have specified these are the big ideas these are the big ideas of the discipline these are the core ideas uh, and the framework specified disciplinary core ideas actually at a much higher overarching level i think than had been done before yeah. i think again that people have misunderstood what those core ideas are uh, so for in, for example in chemistry we have a, 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 an exams institute, the ACS exams institute, and they have specified enduring ideas, something. Mm. Anyway, big yeah. ideas. But they've got now 13 of them, and they're essentially the topics in the textbook. And so that's not the same thing at all. Um, so th is 13 a lot or a little? 13's a lot. 13's a lot, right? So, so there's fewer um, core ideas. You know, I think there are fewer core ideas in in the framework and in the work that we we've, we've done, mm -hmm. um, and the topics tie into the core ideas. So they're underneath. If you think, if you think, for example, that forces and energy are completely separate, mm -hmm. then you're probably wrong. 
Um, if you think kinetics and thermodynamics are completely separate and not connected to forces and energy, mm. you're completely wrong. So the, our understanding of the core ideas is at a higher level than, than the disciplinary topics that are typically right. kind of called out. Okay, well, here's probably a softball, but you touched on this a little bit. Um, what does assessment even have to do with three-dimensional learning? <laughs> so students value, they see that what we use for assessments is what we value. Hmm. Even though it, in the past it hasn't been, we as faculty, definitely I would say, and I put myself in this uh, group too, have in the past spent way more time designing my course than designing my assessments. You mm. know, I mean, we'd have a test mm -hmm. three times a semester and as, as it arrives, panic sets mm -hmm. in and you, and you don't write the best questions. So um, to me, the assessments have to come first. We have to set, we have to specify, lay it out, what it is we want students to know and be able to do and design those kinds of assessments up front so that we know where we're going. And uh, I've had people say to me, oh, so you're going to teach to the test? Mm. And yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, because this is hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard to write a good explanation. It's hard to use a model to make a prediction about something. You know, we're, gonna, we're not going to use on the test the thing that we taught in class but we are going to teach them to write explanations we're going to teach them to how to extract information from graphs and and tables and diagrams um so yeah yeah something that gets a lot of uh, press these days is referred to as active learning and i just wanted to give you a chance to weigh on what uh, the distinction is between active learning and three-dimensional learning. Sure. So, yeah, you're right. Active learning, there's uh, a lot of buzz around it. But the problem is, again, that we don't actually know what we mean when we say active learning. Some of the seminal papers haven't even defined it. Uh, but typically, is what's included is, you know, using clickers in class, having students engage in class on uh, in groups, no, those mm -hmm. kinds of yep. things. And uh, but the problem is that uh, you can act, you can engage, act, have students actively engaged in things that do not engage them in scientific practices and cross-cutting mm -hmm. concepts and core ideas. So you can, so many uh, a, a lot of the questions that students or, or tasks that students are doing are actually pretty trivial. They're not three-dimensional. They're not using their knowledge. And therefore, even though they're engaged, they're not engaged, I don't think, often in a meaningful way. And although, and, and certainly there have been many papers now that show that having students engaged in their learning improves outcomes, particularly for students who are in the, probably the lower third uh, of the uh, the class, which is good. Uh, but what we would really like is uh, to move beyond that, right? We, we want students to be engaged with the learning, but we want them to be engaged in something that's meaningful, uh, where they're 
where they are using their knowledge, not just um, cranking through problems or reaction mechanisms mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Okay. Um, as you know, I'm sold on, you know, <laughs> trying to implement this in higher ed. I have a question about, I guess we call it coherence though. Um, would you agree with someone who would argue that if students get three-dimensional instruction and assessment for a semester or two in a class or two, that it's probably not enough, or that's probably not even going to really make a dent in their you know long-term trajectory. But first of all, would you agree with that? I would, yes. So how do we get there? That would be its, its yeah. own hour, but. Right. So I, in fact, we've got evidence of that. So, um, you know, we have a number of three-dimensional uh, classes in uh, chemistry uh, going up through organic. And we've done an, a number of studies uh, comparing students in three-dimensional classes and uh, traditional. You know, obviously we're, we're choosing uh, what what we what we're looking for, but uh, in general, what we see is that students in the three dimensional classes are are much better at mechanistic reasoning, are constructing arguments and explanations. And what we also see is that if students switch from one kind of class to the another, it has a really pretty profound impact. Measured this, we've seen this now in a couple of different studies. They essentially, at the end of the course that they're taking, they look like uh, more or less the students who are in that course, Mm. which sounds obvious. But let's say we have a student who who starts off in a traditional course and transfers to a three-dimensional. They actually start that three-dimensional course at a pretty distinct disadvantage. They look quite different, but they catch up over the semester which is great. That's great news. But students also switch the other way. So if a student starts in a three-dimensional course and then ends up in a traditional, they end up looking like traditional Mm. students on the assessment tests, which is very disturbing, actually. And what that means is, of course, (laughs) that if we're serious, we have to to get more buy-in across the board if we think that this is something important that we should be doing, which of course I do. Right. It's re- reminding me of another quote I had written down. Um, Peter Senge, I, don't, I didn't know this guy, but he said, vision spread because of a reinforcing process of increasing clarity, enthusiasm, communication, and commitment. As people talk, the vision grows clearer, enthusiasm for, the, for its benefits build, and soon the vision starts to spread in a reinforcing spiral of communication and excitement. He's not telling you how to do it, but you get the feeling he's, you get the feeling he's right. I, I, wish. <laughs> I know. I, I Yes. Uh, well, it's like that video you showed us of the guy who was out there dancing all mm-hmm. alone. And eventually, you know, he, people joined him and, and eventually everybody danced. I guess one of the reasons for doing this podcast is to mm-hmm. get the word out. No, actually, I'm just doing it for the advertising dollars. <laughs> So I want to let you go soon, and I, I don't want this question to feel like a tack-on um, because I know it's something that you think about deeply and care about, but um, does 3DL, in your mind, by itself, um, 
or maybe not necessarily by itself. Does 3DL do anything to address big issues of equity and inclusion with our students? Yes, that's an excellent question. And uh, I think we are starting to see some uh, evidence of this. Um, We do know that um, in 3DL classes, the overall pass rate has increased and more students are able to move through. But we're starting to analyze um, student performance on on the individual questions on Mm. on these tests. And what we see is that three-dimensional questions in general are much uh, less discriminatory than uh, the typical kinds of uh, problems that are on a GenChem test. That is, it's well known, for example, that uh, performance in most general chemistry courses is highly correlated with math preparation and mm-hmm. background, which of course is highly correlated with you know where you went to school mm-hmm. and what what the culture was and how much support you had. Sure. Uh, and so some students, uh, you know, are are essentially kind of cut out there. Uh, they're forced into math prep courses that don't help. Uh, you know, and so this gateway course of general chemistry becomes a gatekeeper because it can't pass the math mm-hmm. uh, right off the bat. That's not to say that they won't ever. Uh, it's to say that they, why, why would we put the gate in a chemistry course with something that's not really all that relevant? You know, we might associate it with rigor, but it isn't really mm-hmm. And what we're finding is that student performance on uh, three-dimensional questions, where all students are essentially starting from a similar starting point, because mm-hmm. none of them have done it before, what we find is, is that the outcomes are much more equitable. They're certainly not predicated on math preparation anymore. So that, to me, is very, very encouraging. We can start to... I'm not saying that chemistry should have no math. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that at all. But what I'm saying is if we can get students hooked early on with, you know, the joy of understanding, all, the rest can come later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, you may think I'm a dreamer, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one. <laughs> all right. Well, Melanie, I really want to thank you for all your time. I think you've given us all a lot to think about. I think at a whole bunch of, different levels, at least for me. And I kind of knew that was going to happen coming in. And so I appreciate you. And thanks again for coming and talking to us. Yeah, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. 